Good morning. Hi, it's so good to see you today. And it's so good to be here on a day of such great news, isn't it? If we ever needed good news, it's today. In these times when it seems like all we're ever doing is turning on the news and hearing so much bad news, so much discouragement. I talked to some people recently that said that they're just not even turning on the news anymore. They can't take it because it seems like every day there's another shooting. Every day there's another tragedy somewhere, and it's just, it's just too much to take. So every now and then it's really good when you come across some kind of a feel-good, funny little segment on the news some, somewhere on, on the Internet, something that you watch. And I came across this little um, segment recently, and I just wanted to share it with you. A story of something so crazy that it just might work. Maybe. Uh, the Black Panther movie had a huge opening weekend. One completely heroic effort by two kids to get in to see the film. This <laughs> is <laughs> my one great thing to get you started oh my goodness. this morning. Their quest to see the movie at a discount looks like something out of a movie. Twitter user Pillsbury tweeted out this video. It's gotten nearly 10 million views. They tried out, you can see, the old tall man routine. <laughs> one person gets on the other's shoulders, they put on a long trench coat, they wear a hat. It is classic, usually seen only in cartoons, but still classic. The screwball idea was a delight for pretty much everyone waiting in line at the box office, except, of course, for the manager. We tried getting the two-for-one special at Black Panther, Pillsbury tweeted, along with the video. The manager was not having it. I am, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, give them the tickets. Man. <laughs> That's a lot of effort. They deserve it's it. It's so right? great. It's just so ridiculous. I just kept watching it over and over again. They said, next time, a horse costume. <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? But, you know, I give them kudos for trying. I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty funny that they, uh, maybe they thought that they could actually get away with that, or else they were just trying to give everybody a good laugh. But either way, they didn't disguise themselves very well at all, did they? Disguises. Some people don't want people to see the real them, and other people are not seen as they really are. Whether it's because they put up a wall around themselves or simply because they've been put in a category, maybe they've been judged, labeled, assumptions have been made about them, maybe they've even been written off because of their outward appearances, their lifestyles and behaviors, whether actual or assumed. And such was the case in the story that we're going to look at today, the story of Zacchaeus found in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. It says, he, it's Jesus. Let's read that together. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. I, you know, we don't all have to read this long passage together. Sorry, I'll read it for you. Just read along. <laughs> Let's just clarify. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. 
And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. As we walk through this story together today, my prayer is that if you haven't already met Jesus, that you will encounter the fullness of his grace today. And that if you do already walk with Jesus, that today you will be encouraged um, to look beyond the outward expressions, the outward appearances of people, and extend his grace to everyone as you join him on mission. The first thing that I want us to look at today is the hunger. The hunger of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was obviously hungry for more than he had experienced in life. Um, But before we talk about that, I just want to look at who Zacchaeus was. Luke is the only gospel writer who tells us about Zacchaeus. Luke felt particularly impressed by the Holy Spirit to include this story and to put it here for a reason. This is one last chance to reiterate Jesus' mission his main purpose for coming, to seek and to save the lost. This encounter puts flesh and blood on this statement, and it's a demonstration of what the mission really looks like when the rubber meets the road. You see, Jesus is on his way from Jerusalem to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And this is the, you know, he's going to, in a few days, going to be facing death on a cross. And this is one last chance. This is the last named individual that he will meet with before that time. It lets this encounter linger in our mind as we continue to read about his arrest and crucifixion. Now he's walking through some of the most crowded streets you can ever imagine. Kind of like, you know, when the fireworks are over at some big celebration in a big city and you're making your way back to your car and you're just doing the, you know, the fireworks shuffle, trying to get back to your car and it took, you know, it's it's hours because it does, it's the fireworks is 10 minutes, 15 minutes, but it takes an hour to get back to your car. So imagine that kind of a crowd on steroids. This is way worse. This is a very, very crowded street. Jericho, you see, was the center of lucrative production and export of balsam. It was centered here because it was in the Jordan Valley, so it was like an oasis in the desert. And there was an important trade route that went from Jerusalem to the east that passed right through there. So it was a very crowded road, and on top of that, everyone in these parts knew about Jesus, or they heard something about him, the miracle worker, the healer, the preacher. He was famous, and everybody wanted to get a glimpse of him. Some people um, were able to get up close, as in every crowd, and others just were straining through the crowd. Yet what we're told about Zacchaeus next make him a very unlikely candidate to even want to go and see Jesus. That's the interesting thing. And yet we see that this was not the case. He did want to see him. All we're really told about him in this scripture is that he is short and that he is a tax collector. Now being known as short may have already made him feel on the outside or marginalized a bit. Just to be known as anything. You know how cruel the kids are in school. Well, maybe at Hebrew school, he was made fun of all the time. Maybe he resented God for making him that way. Maybe he worked really hard to become important enough to make a name for himself, despite being teased as a kid, as so many do. We don't know how much. We don't know much more about this statement, other than he, the fact that he was short, didn't keep him from doing things because he's very ingenious, very smart. He didn't let his size become an, uh, uh, an object that would stand in his way. The other thing that we're told about him is that he's a tax collector. 
Now, this term is used 24 times in the New Testament and only in the Gospels. And we see it many, many times. Luke uses the word the most. And he always lets us know that the Jewish community, the people of God, saw tax collectors as sinners. He makes no bones about that. But this one piece of information is actually a gold mine in understanding about Zacchaeus. We read these words and we just kind of pass over them so quickly. But the fact that he was a tax collector tells us a whole bunch of stuff. Zacchaeus would have been loathed because he was working for the Roman Empire. The Romans levied heavy taxes on the nations under them in order to finance their world empire. And his job would have been to pay a fixed amount to Rome, and he could have padded his pockets by overtaxing his people. As a Jew, he, would have been, he should have been helping to take a stand against the Romans, but here he is instead helping them and getting rich in the process. He was considered a reprobate. But the treason goes even further because you have to think about it for a moment. In order to tax people that didn't even have bank accounts, they needed somebody on the inside who knew where the Jewish wealth was. The Jews opposed the taxes because they went toward the support of the Rome secular government and its pagan gods. And so for one of their own to work for the Romans against them and, and rat them out, that was a complete disgrace. Everyone in town hated this man. And it doesn't just say he was a tax collector. It says he was the chief tax collector. It's the only time that title is found here. And it basically means exactly what it sounds like. He's head of the whole taxation department. And you know, here he is, a very well-off man. But even though he was really wealthy, he didn't have the added respect in his community that normally would have been given to a Jewish person with lots of money. He wasn't a member of the elite. Tax collectors weren't even allowed to testify in Hebrew court. They weren't allowed to give money in the temple treasury. And I kind of thought about that, and I thought, if they'd been smart, they would have let them, let them do that, because at least they would have recouped some of the money. But they weren't considered trustworthy or reliable enough, and so they weren't allowed. And Zacchaeus, he wouldn't have been pressured to work for the Romans. I found this fact kind of interesting. He most likely would have sought out the job, because under the Roman system, tax collection jobs were farmed out to people who bought the rights to collect taxes. So here he is, hated by his fellow Jews, but he's just living it up with the Romans, right? Well, the thing is, is that the Romans kind of had a reputation for executing the hired help. So he would have always been walking that tightrope, kind of nervous and scared, knowing he was a disposable person, and that's a lot of stress to live under. So society classified him a write-off, a sinner, a reprobate, end of story. But the main characteristic of Zacchaeus is not that he was short, or that he was wealthy or a tax collector. It was that he was a social outcast, perhaps as a child and now as an adult, despite all he has done to work his way up in the world. Now maybe Zacchaeus hoped that the man Jesus that he had heard about would be different from the religious people surrounding him. He had probably heard of some of the kind remarks of Jesus towards publicans. Maybe he had heard of his rebukes of religious leaders. Maybe he knew somehow that Matthew, one of the closest disciples, used to be Levi, the tax collector. And so he thought to himself, this guy certainly sounds different from the religious folk. Maybe he was simply curious, wanting to see someone that all the buzz was about. It's like if we went down next month to the streets of Toronto during the TIFF 
festival to try to line up and catch some kind of glimpse through the crowd of Nicole Kidman or Matt Damon. Simple curiosity. We want to catch that glimpse. We want to know what the buzz is about. He may have had a bad conscience for what he was doing for a living. Maybe it haunted him that he was turning his back on his own people and getting rich at their expense. Maybe behind the wall of worldliness and wealth was simply a hungry man, hungry for something that money couldn't buy. He may have found that his lavish lifestyle didn't fill the void in his heart, and he longed to meet this man who people were saying was the long-awaited Messiah, the one he would have heard about as a boy when he was young and full of hope and potential. Because of the incredible crowd surrounding Zacchaeus, or surrounding Jesus, Zacchaeus, a man so despised and so small, um, he would have been almost completely invisible to the people around him. He couldn't see, but he was smart. And when there's a will, there's a way. And so Zacchaeus found that sycamore tree. Sycamore trees had low horizontal branches, so a smaller man would be easily able to climb it. They had tons of foliage. They were planted near the roads. Perfect hiding spot somewhere where he could see but stay hidden. What do you think Zacchaeus was feeling when he climbed that tree? Have you ever stopped and even thought about it? What was going through his mind? Does he believe the the labels that were put on him? Was he ashamed? Did he want more than anything to have a fresh start? Maybe he pretends that he doesn't care, but on the inside he's in pain because he very much wants to be one of the ones that followed Jesus. Being the product of labeling is very painful, and Zacchaeus was no doubt defensive and hurt. And of course, we have the added benefit of seeing how this ends. We know that Jesus is going to stop, but he had no idea. He's just hiding in that tree, feeling all the things that he's feeling, wanting to catch a glimpse of the man. And what I think is so cool about this passage is that as much as Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, Jesus wanted to see him more. Jesus wanted to see him more. Um, so, yeah, okay, I'm just going to check over my things here. The second point is honor. Secondly, we see that the honor Jesus bestows on Zacchaeus. Yeah, I'm, I just got to look at my pages and make sure I'm on the right track. You okay with that? I'm kind of like, where am I? These glasses things really throw me off. I can't really see you that good. I know you're there. But I can see my notes, and I guess that's more important, right? Okay, so we ended with that. Second point is honor. Thank you for putting that up. Jesus saw Zacchaeus. One person in a huge pushing crowd. They're shoving. They're eager. They're rude, maybe, because people tend to be rude when they're pushing in a crowd. And with his head at eye level with everyone else, You know, what made Jesus deliberately stop right there and look up at this man? I kind of know a little bit about what it's like to be noticed by someone a tiny bit famous in a crowd. It's kind of a lame story, really. But I don't have really great stories. Like, where everybody I know, when they go through L.A. airport, they see somebody, you know. I'm on the lookout, and and I'm pretty good at, you know, looking for the disguises, the hat that's down over the head. And I've missed famous people up in Manitoulin Island, like... I missed Rachel McAdam by two people in the checkout line. I, didn't, I, I just don't have good encounters. But if you're a sports fan, this person's kind of famous, I guess, because they were a Toronto Maple Leaf. I did go to high school with Shane Corson. 
because I went to high school in Barrie. Now, does anybody know who Shane Corson is? Please tell me somebody does. He's a little bit famous, please. Yeah, he's really famous. I knew somebody really famous. So I went to high school with him. He played hockey with my boyfriend when I was 16 on the Barrie Colts. So we knew each other a bit, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we won't go there, but I did know him enough to, you know, private parties at his parents' restaurant. So anyways... <laughs> but in, and years and years later, um, we were living in St. John's, and of course there were the St. John's Maple Leafs at that time, and in 2000, Shane came on to the Toronto Maple Leafs, and I think that was the, uh, I think it was in 2000, they came to do like an exhibition practice in St. John's, and it was a weekday, and um, our oldest daughter, Liz, is a huge hockey fan. She was since she was four, and she figured out the difference between the, the ref and the players. And just got really into hockey. So this day, I let her skip school. We played hooky, and we had to go down because her idol was Matt Sundin, one of the greatest hockey players ever, number 13. He was fantastic. And so she had this, we had this great picture in our house that, that hung on the wall, and we took that for him to sign. And I took my yearbook. <laughs> I thought... He didn't sign it because he was already gone, actually. You know, he'd gone off. And usually in high school, they go off um, to play and they move on to the, the big leagues. So he was already gone. So he didn't sign my yearbook. So I took it. And, and, and the reason this really relates to this story is because, he, you know, when some, I don't know if you've ever had, you probably have famous autographs, don't you? But, um, and don't tell me about them. It'll just make me feel bad. Uh, but um, when somebody's signing, they're kind of just, people are pushing papers and things, whatnot, pictures and stuff at someone, and they're just going like this. They're basically not even looking up at you. And all of a sudden, you know, as I make my way closer and closer and closer, I put the yearbook down in front of him. So he's like, the, and all of a sudden he goes, oh, hey, how you doing? And everyone around was kind of looking at me like, oh, she knows him. I wonder how she knows him. That's my only moment. <laughs> and it's, but it's, the proof is right there. Not, and, and number 27, not like some of the things say, because, yeah, some of the things say he was 72, and they're wrong. It was 27, and there's the proof. But anyways, I know what it's like to kind of be recognized. But, you know, as much as Shane Corson was surprised to see me all those years later in St. John's, this encounter was no shock to Jesus. As he wound his way along that crowded road, he knew an incredibly important meeting was to be had that day. He wasn't surprised to look up and see a man in a tree. Jesus knew exactly where Zacchaeus was, who he was, and why he was there. Jesus saw Zacchaeus not just physically, but spiritually, just as he really was. He didn't see a label, or an issue, a category, or a box, just a person. And Jesus called him by name, Zacchaeus. He didn't label him. He, to everyone else, Zacchaeus was the tax collector, the sinner. But to Jesus, he was Zacchaeus. And you know what? That may have been the very first time in years that Zacchaeus had heard anyone say his name without a curse word attached to it, if at all. It's of special note that Zacchaeus' name in Hebrew means pure. Isn't that incredible? A cheating, robbing tax collector whose name means pure. I love God's sense of irony. And Jesus could see right through to Zacchaeus' heart, and I think he found pureness there. Matthew 5, verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word sinner is the opposite of a pure person. 
And yet in the economy of Jesus, it was Zacchaeus's heart who was pure. And as we'll see, the members of the crowd that did not have pure hearts. Jesus saw that there was so much more to Zacchaeus than his job of collecting taxes. He saw the man, man behind the position and behind the label. And while there may have been no observable need or obvious desire, Jesus could see beyond his outer disposition. Jesus saw right through the smoke and mirrors to the essence of man, and he could see that Zacchaeus was ready for change. Jesus says, I must stay, not I would like to stay, implying that Jesus saw his visit as an important part of his divine mission. In Jesus' day, a mealtime was a very important social event, not just merely a time to satisfy hunger. I guess really it's the same today. Sharing a meal with someone then, though, was equal to extending solidarity or acceptance, acting like they were part of your extended family. And it's not just that Jesus didn't understand societal norms. He exploited them. He turned them upside down. He, he always did. The topsy-turvy kingdom of Jesus Christ, he wanted to break bread with this man, fellowship at the table, what Christ invites all of us to. The very people that were excluded from the table of the holy, he welcomed. Isn't that amazing? In that day, people only ate with others with whom they had shared values or who they felt was on the same level with them. And that's why in the story of the prodigal son, the elder brother refuses to share the feast of, of the, the prodigal brother because he was saying, I have nothing in common with this person who has hurt my family or dishonored my family like this. For Jesus to eat with a tax collector and, in, and a sinner implied that he had more in common with their world, not God's world. We cannot miss how incredibly scandalous this was. The third thing is hatred. The next thing Luke, Luke tells us about is the hatred in the crowd, the newfound hatred in the crowd for Zacchaeus. We aren't told much about the crowd. We know that everyone else there is clamoring to see Jesus. Some may have already encountered him. They may have been healed by him. Some are family and friends that have heard of something that happened, and now they want to come and see him for themselves. We do know that there was a lot of religious folks surrounding Jesus, and each one of them probably thought that there could possibly be the chance that he would choose them to have a meal with. They may have even had their wives or their servants prepare the fatted calf just in case it was them that would be honored in that way. But then Jesus announces that he's heading over to Zacchaeus' house, of all people. And verse 7 says that they all began to mutter and complain. All is put there to bring emphasis, to show that Jesus was the only one who had a different approach. They didn't think Zacchaeus was a suitable candidate for Jesus to spend time with. Anyone but him, a tax collector and a sinner? murmured. They says that the crowd murmured, and it refers to that low muttering ripple that, that goes through a crowd when they're dissatisfied. You've probably heard that sometime in your life. It seems that it's always the religious folk in the Bible that just don't get it. They were certainly the ones that Jesus was the most frustrated with, weren't they? He saved his strongest rebukes for them, the ones that should have known better. If it was up to the religious people, Zacchaeus wouldn't have even gotten close enough to see Jesus in the first place. He would have gotten to see all of the religiosity, all of the rules, all of the do's and don'ts surrounding Jesus, but not the man himself. And how sad that would have been, considering that they were very poor representatives of the love and mercy and grace of God. And now that Jesus has chosen to eat with him, well, they are indignant and they're outraged. And finally, we see hate the heart. The heart of Zacchaeus, his change in attitude, 
what he deems important in life in his very spiritual condition. There's always two responses to an invitation from Jesus, isn't there? We can either receive him or we can reject him. And these two responses are highlighted when we look at the contrast with this story and the story of the rich young ruler that was told just one chapter earlier. We see two men that were wealthy, but the rich young ruler, he couldn't give up his material wealth. He just wouldn't give up his possessions. Too materialistic. And after rejecting Jesus, he left very sad. But by contrast, you have Zacchaeus who received him joyfully and wanted to make restitution from a grateful heart for all that he had done. Romans 2.4 says, the kindness of God leads you to repentance. I love that. Repentance not, is not just feeling wrong for, sorry for doing something wrong, but it's the remorse that turns to action to make things right, to turn from evil towards good and become obedient to God's will. This is a dramatic change in Zacchaeus. Instead of the passion to get, he now has the passion to give. He says, if I have taken anything. And what it means here is, if, as I know is the case, if I have taken anything, he wants to pay back. His, his comments here weren't addressed to the crowd. They were addressed to Jesus. It was in an effort to convince the crowd how much he's changed. As Tay-Tay would say, you know, the hater's going to hate. Anybody? Okay. Somebody's listening? Okay. I had to throw that in just to see if you're listening. It was simply a spontaneous reaction to grace. He now had a heart filled with the same grace. He became giving. Benevolence after receiving benevolence. Freely he had received, and now freely he would give. Interestingly, in the Old Testament... In the law of restitution found in Numbers 5, verse 5 to 7, states that one should give back what they owe and add on one-fifth, or 20%. And what is it that Zacchaeus is deciding to give back? 400%. And considering how he made his money, that would have been a really long list of people to pay back. That's a lot of money, but it's trying to show he doesn't even care about that money anymore. He has changed dramatically in this moment. And Jesus says that salvation has come to his house, not because he earned it by doing a good deed, but because of the change in his heart. Jesus declares him to be a spiritual son of Abraham. We already know that he was one by physical birth, um, but now Jesus is stating that it's true in the spiritual sense by rebirth. Galatians 3, 6, 7 says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You see, it's not enough to simply be a descendant of Abraham. One's heart must be right with God. Jesus is declaring to all within earshot who they, that, that this man, who they never thought would be anything but a reprobate, who they didn't even think deserved to see Jesus, has now been made right with God. And the very thing that Zacchaeus had given away, the dignity of being a faithful and upright Jew, to exploit his own, Jesus has now fully restored in front of everyone. So what are some of the learning points today? What are some of the things that we can take away from this portion of Scripture? The first thing that I would say is that people are often more interested than we think. I have found that to be true. I, in fact, I have found that they are often much more interested than they appear to be. You know, we look at friends and family, uh, the people that we know, our neighbors, and based on how they act, what they say, how they seem to be living, we decide how close they are to being a Christian. 
we look at the outward person. That person at work who, you know, tells the off-color jokes and comes in on Monday with all of the bravado about the weekend parties and brags on and on. The family member who shows up to our reunions and ridicules us for being naive enough to believe that God actually created the world. Maybe the child who comes home drunk again and mouths off at us. Maybe an unbelieving spouse who points out whenever we raise our voice that they thought you were a Christian and you're not acting very Christ-like. You know, I honestly believe that God only sees souls. He only sees hearts of people, and some hearts are hurting, and that's why they hurt others. He looks at the outs. He doesn't look at the outside. We do. Only God knows motive and intent and the deep desires of the heart. We're reminded of that in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, that says, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the person who may look for all intents purposes like they are far from God could be closer to his heart than someone who on the outside looks to be more godly, more holy, more Christian. We've got to get that through our heads because we are so prone to putting people in those boxes. But you know what? It is so incredibly freeing that when the day comes when we realize we are not God. Do you remember that? We are not God. It's incredibly freeing. It frees us up to stop judging and labeling and categorizing and trying to figure it all out. And we just get to love people the way that he did. That's all we have to do. And we can leave the rest to God. The second thing is that sometimes, sadly, it's the people of God who keep people from seeing God. Like that old saying about not being able to see the forest for the trees. I think that it's pretty safe to say that none of us surrendered our hearts to Jesus because we found him to be cruel, critical, judgmental, or mean. Is that true? We found a God of unconditional love, acceptance, kindness, mercy, grace. That is what drew us to him. It was his undeserved mercy. That's what made us want him in our life. And so then why do we spend so much of our time turning around and evaluating others as to whether they are acceptable, whether they are in or whether they are out? A study done by the Barna Group found that among young people who don't go to church, 87% said that they saw Christians as judgmental and 85% see them as hypocritical. Now, there could be a whole debate on that. There's a whole bunch of reasons. Um, we can appear that way because, you know what, even in here, we are not perfect. As the saying goes, we're forgiven and we make mistakes too. But all that aside, isn't it sad that those are the two things that Christians are often most known for? That's a long way from they will know that you are my disciples because of your love one for another. It makes no sense when you think about it, really, except that as humans, we have the tendency to forget. We've gotten so used to being on the inside that some of us are even, uh, we, we feel like we deserve to be here. But it's his grace and his grace alone that has redeemed us. When we live in a place when we are completely overwhelmed by his undeserved mercy, his grace, in the face of our blatant and sinful humanity, we can lavish that grace on others. And that grace is what draws people to Christ. Not arguing with them, not judging them, or looking down on them. Certainly not separating ourselves from them. 
grace and love and choosing to see the way that God sees. That's what makes the difference. And thirdly, there's room at the table for everyone. Just like in our families, you know, when we sit around the table at a special occasion of extended family and you've got that oddball aunt and that obnoxious cousin and the know-it-all uncle, and I hope you're not thinking too much of all those people right now, but maybe the friend of a friend who has nowhere to go on the special occasion. There's people of varying opinions and lifestyles. There's those who practice a different religion or no religion at all, varying beliefs and attitudes. But in the end, we all sit down together we all try to be kind, hopefully. We, we put up with the differences, hopefully, because we're family. And just like at our family tables, there's this come one, come all invitation from Jesus. Jesus didn't call Zacchaeus out. He didn't and go over and, and, and name all the things and point out to him everything that he had done wrong. Zacchaeus already knew those things. He didn't point all that out. He simply said he wanted to break bread with him. He wanted to enjoy table fellowship. And just as the story of the prodigal son is mostly about the bad attitude of the older brother, so too in this story, it's not so much about Zacchaeus's curiosity, his call, or his conversion as it is about the bad attitude of the crowd. This is Jesus's last living illustration to deal with this issue once and for all before he faces the cross where he will die for everyone. We know that he was forever calling out these attitudes. He was always humbling the ones who should know better and elevating the ones who came to him with genuine interest and need. And I think that's why I love this story so much. I don't know about you. You're probably the same. I'm forever a champion of the underdog. I even had, my oldest daughter even pointed out to me one day, she said, you know what, every movie and TV show that we watch, your favorite character is that person with the grisly exterior and the secret teddy bear heart. And I, you're right. Always and always and always, the same character is my favorite because I believe in the underdog, in that person that the world has discarded and they don't think anything of themselves or maybe they believe the labels. Oh, there's so much more to them. In our society, many are ostracized and marginalized by those who say they are Christians because of their political views, their moral behavior, their lifestyles, and yet these are the very ones that Jesus came to seek and to save. They're the ones he wants to have join his kingdom. And we've talked so much about mission, haven't we? Boy, have we talked about mission. We just finished a sermon series that said, if we want to live out the mission, we need to be committed to the mission. And I'm saying that we need to be committed to the right mission. The mission is not about forcing our viewpoints on people. It's not about trying to make the world a Christian world. It's not about winning theological arguments. It's not about opinions and preferences and surrounding ourselves with people that are like-minded. It's not about shaking our heads and our fists at the darkness of this world. It's about inviting people into apprenticeship with Jesus, into the relationship with God who created them and loves them unconditionally. There is room at the table for everyone. I think that we've got communion so mixed up today in so many of our churches. It's, it's just unbelievable. The Lord's table was never meant to be an exclusionary experience for the elite. It was meant to be an open invitation to the broken, the lost, the hurting, the curious. Come one, come all, break bread with Jesus and experience the miracle of restoration and healing that comes from knowing that you are loved fully and completely. That's the kind of church that I want to go to. 
That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Amen? Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor, not just the economically poor, but the disadvantaged, the excluded of society. Jesus shunned all societal expectations, touching lepers, letting old, odd women, I should say not old women, odd women wipe his feet with his hair, um, befriending tax collectors, sitting down with sinners, touching dead people. He refused to condemn the woman caught in adultery because he saw people, not issues. He walked the line between purity and inclusivity perfectly in the world, but not of it. He was so sure about his mission. He knew why he came to seek and save the lost. So who are the Zacchaeuses in society today, for you today? Are they the richest people with the lavish lifestyles? Is it the poor? Or is it people with disabilities, those with addictions or mental illness, the LGBTQ community, those involved in the sex trade, politicians? those who have faced all kinds of different charges and we don't even know what the truth is. Certainly those of different religious backgrounds and that we don't understand. People who look different, act different, think different. Basically, anybody could be. These are our Zacchaeuses, the ones that we ignore or push to the sidelines or detest, whether secretly or openly. And I'm not advocating for condoning sin, and, and I'm certainly not saying don't set appropriate boundaries where needed with people in your life, but I am for seeing people and not issues. In Jesus' day, a sinner was one whose behavior departed from the norms of an identified group with established boundaries of conduct. Sounds just about the same as today. Simply, a sinner was an outsider. Today, this could be anyone on the outside of church. Some churches even look down on other denominations from their own, thinking that somehow they've got the handle on how it's all supposed to be done. But in this story, Jesus was on his way to the cross for all people, anyone who would come to him with all of their flaws. There is not one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus' kingdom is a story of outsiders becoming insiders and of unexpected grace. Jesus was discredited for the company that he kept, and I think maybe it's time we were too. He was accused of being a friend of sinners, and that word friend, it has so much more meaning than our watered-down term today. So many people have so many friends on social media, people that really, have, in the end of the day, have absolutely no idea who they really are. But here, he was a friend, and he was known as a friend of sinners, when today a lot of us don't even have one person that we regularly spend time with who isn't a Christian. It seems so odd to me to say that we're a Christ follower, but not live and love as he did. I'm going to ask Tyler and the worship team to come back um, as I just make a few last remarks. I think this story is such an incredible illustration of the importance that God places on people. It reminds us of the lavishness of his grace, and it demonstrates for us how to live out the mission. So where do you find yourself in this story today, or in this place today? Maybe today you find yourself just every day you're completely and overwhelmingly surprised 
baptized by grace and you just live in that place where you're sharing it with others. And if that's you today, I encourage you to keep stopping, keep looking up, keep extending the offer, even to the ones that don't look like they want it or that they get it. Maybe you've been following Christ a really long time. Maybe it's been so long that your heart has grown cold. Maybe it's indifferent to the grace that he lavished on you. Maybe you've forgotten that moment. Can I, can I ask you just to think back to that moment? That moment when you realized that despite who you were and all that you had done, you knew that he saw and that he knew and that he loved you anyways. Let's not have been on the inside so long that we grow judgmental of all those on the outside. Because the good news today is that if you'll just pause and remember, if you'll just surrender yourself again to the God that lavished that grace on you, and remember that only He is God, He will free you to enjoy that grace and to freely pour it out on others. He will free you from the weight that you carry, a feeling like it's your job to judge people and to figure it all out. You don't, you don't have to. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't even need to be able to debate theological things. You just need to be able to come alongside people and love them. Maybe today you're hungry to know more about Jesus. Maybe the life that you live has not lived up to the expectations that you had and you find yourself empty and longing for change. Maybe you found that the religious crowd has been a discouragement to you. Maybe even preventing you from catching that full glimpse of who he really is. Maybe you felt judged or criticized or labeled by them. Yet deep down, somehow, there's still that hope and that belief that he sees, that he knows, and that he really does love you unconditionally. The good news today is that if you will seek him the way that Zacchaeus did, you will find him. You may feel like you're scrambling up in that tree right now, trying to catch just the littlest glimpse of him, when all along he's standing there right now. He's looking at you. And when he looks at you, he sees everything. And he loves you so much. He accepts you. He wants to change your life. He doesn't see the label. You really do belong. All you need to do is accept the offer. Zacchaeus, once lost and now found, a small man with a big heart, a sinner saved by grace because of the kindness of God, the kindness of God that led him to repentance. A reminder for us to stop judging on the outside, to see people, not issues to know that our mission is to love people and invite them to the table. And I don't know about you, but that's a mission that I want to be a part of.